Chapter Twenty Five of Whispering Smith by Frank Spearman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Five: The Man on the Frenchman. Sinclair's place on the Frenchman backed up on a sharp rise against the foothills of the Bridger Range, and the ranch buildings were strung along the creek. The ranch house stood on ground high enough to command the country for miles up and down the valley. Only two roads lead from Medicine Bend and the south into the Frenchman country, one a wagon road following Smoky Creek and running through Dale Canyon, the other a pack road known as the Gridley Trail, crossing the Topatopa Hills and making a short cut from the Dunning Ranch on the Crawling Stone to the Frenchman. The entire valley is, in fact, so difficult to access save by the long and roundabout wagon road that the sight of a complete outfit of buildings such as that put up by Sinclair always came as a surprise to the traveler, who, reaching the crest of the hills, looked suddenly down a thousand feet on his well-ordered sheds and barns and corrals. The rider who reaches the Topatopa crest on the Gridley Trail now sees in the valley below only traces of what was so laboriously planned and perfectly maintained a few years ago. But even the ruins left on the Frenchman show the Herculean labor undertaken by the man in setting up a comfortable and even an elaborate establishment in so inaccessible a spot his defiance of all ordinary means of doing things was shown in his preference for bringing much of his building material over the trail instead of around by the smoky creek road a good part of the lumber that went into his house was packed over the gridley trail his piano was brought through the canyon on a wagon but the mechanical player for the piano and his wagons themselves were packed over the trail on the backs of mules a heavy steel range for the kitchen had been brought over the same way for sinclair no work was hard enough none went fast enough and reverie never rose high enough during the time of his activity in the frenchman valley sinclair had the best appointed place between william's cache and the crawling stone and in the crawling stone only the dunning ranch would bear comparison with his own on the Frenchman, Sinclair kept an establishment the fame of which is still foremost in mountain story. Here his cows ranged the canyons and the hills for miles, and his horses were known from Medicine Bend to Fort Tracy. Here he rallied his men, laid snares for his enemies, dispensed a reckless hospitality, ruled his men with an oath and a blow, and carried a six-shooter to explain orders and answer questions with over the gridley trail from the crawling stone marion and dixie dunning rode early in the morning the day after mccloud and his men left the stone ranch with their work done the trail is a good three hours long and they reached sinclair's place at about ten o'clock he was waiting for marion she had sent word she should come and he came out of the front door into the sunshine with a smile of welcome when he saw Dixie with her. Dixie, long an admirer of Sinclair's, as women usually were, had recast somewhat violently her opinions of him. She faced him now with a criminal consciousness that she knew too much. 
the weight of the dreadful secret weighed on her and her responsibility in the issue of the day ahead did not help to make her greeting an easy one one thing only was fixed in her mind and reflected in the tension of her lips and her eyes the resolve to keep at every cost the promise she had given for dixie had fallen under the spell of a man even more compelling than sinclair and felt strangely bounden to what she had said sinclair however had spirit enough to smooth quite away every embarrassment bachelor's quarters he explained roughly and pleasantly as he led the two women toward the house cowmen make poor housekeepers but you must feel at home and when dixie looking at his indian rugs on the floors the walls and the couches said she thought he had little to apologize for sinclair looked gratified and took off his hat again just a moment he said standing at the side of the door i've never been able to get marion over here before so it happens that a woman's foot has never entered the new house i want to watch one of you cross the threshold for the first time dixie moving ahead retreated with a laugh you first then marion no dixie you never you first so marion quite red and wretchedly ill at ease walked into the ranch house first sinclair shone nowhere better than as a host when he had placed his guests comfortably in the living-room he told them the story of the building of the house then he made a cicerone of himself and explained with running comments each feature of his plan as he showed how it had been carried out through the various rooms surprised at the attractiveness of things dixie found herself making mental notes for her own use and began asking questions sinclair was superb in answering but the danger of admiring things became at once apparent for when dixie exclaimed over a handsome bear skin a rich dark brown grizzly skin of unusual size sinclair told the story of the killing bared his tremendous forearm to show where the polished claws had ripped him and disregarding dixie's protests insisted on sending the skin over to crawling stone ranch as a souvenir of her visit i lived a great deal alone over here he said waving dixie's continued refusal magnificently aside as he moved into the next room i've got a few good dogs and i hunt just enough to keep my hand in with a rifle dixie quailed a little at the smile that went with the words the men at least the kind i mix with don't care for grizzly skins and to enjoy anything you've got to have sympathetic company don't you know that he asked looking admiringly at dixie i've got another skin for you a silver tip he added in deep gentle tones addressing marion it has a fine head as fine as i ever saw in the smithsonian it's down at medicine bend now being dressed and mounted by the way i've forgotten to ask you miss dixie about the high water how did you get through at the ranch dixie sitting on the piano bench looked up with resolution bravely she exclaimed mr mccloud came to our rescue with bags and mattresses and a hundred men and he has put in a revetment a thousand feet long oh we are regular river experts at our house now had you any trouble here mr sinclair no the frenchman behaves pretty well in the rock 
We had forty feet of water here one day, though. Forty feet, that's right. McLeod, yes. Able fellow, I guess, too, though he and I don't hit it off. Sinclair sat back in his chair, and as he spoke, he spoke magnanimously. He doesn't like me, but that's no fault of his. Railroad men, and good ones, too, sometimes get started wrong with one another. Well, I'm glad he took care of you. Try that piano, Miss Dixie, will you? I don't know much about pianos, but that ought to be a good one. I would wheel the player over for you, but anyone that plays as beautifully as you do ought not be allowed to use a player. Marion, I want to talk a few minutes with you, may I? Do you mind going out under the cottonwood? Dixie's heart jumped. Don't be gone long, Marion, she exclaimed impulsively, for you know, Mr. Sinclair, we must get back by two o'clock and Dixie, paled with apprehension, looked at them both. Marion, quite composed, nodded reassuringly and followed Sinclair out of doors into the sunshine. For a few minutes Dixie fingered wildly on the piano at some half-forgotten air, and in a fever of excitement walked out on the porch to see where they were. To her relief she saw Marion sitting near Sinclair under the big tree in front of the house where the horses stood. Dixie, with her hands on her girdle, walked forlornly back and forth, hummed a tune, sat down in a rocking chair, fanned herself, rose, walked back and forth again, and reflected she was perfectly helpless, and that Sinclair might kill Marion a hundred times before she could reach her and the thought that Marion was perhaps wholly unconscious of danger increased her anxiety. She sat down in despair. How could Whispering Smith have allowed anyone he had a care for to be exposed in this dreadful way? Trying to think what to do, Dixie hurried back into the living room, walked to the piano, took the pile of sheet music from the top, and sat down to thumb it over. She threw song after song on the chair beside her. There were sheets of gaudy coon songs and ragtime with flaring covers, and they seemed to give off odors of cheap perfume. Dixie hardly saw the titles as she passed them over, but of a sudden she stopped. Between two sheets of the music lay a small handkerchief. It was must, and in the corner of it Nelly was written conspicuously in a laundry mark. The odor of musk came in an instant sickening. Dixie threw the music disdainfully aside and sprang up with a flushed face to leave the room. Sinclair's remark about the first woman to cross his threshold came back to her. From that moment Dixie hated him. But no sooner had she seated herself on the porch than she remembered she had left her hat in the house and rose to go in after it. She was resolved not to leave it under the roof another moment and she had resolved to go over and wait where her horse was tied. As she re-entered the doorway, she stopped. In the room she had just left, a cowboy sat at the table, taking apart a revolver to clean it. The revolver was spread in its parts before him, but across the table lay a rifle. The man had not been in the room when she left it a moment before. Dixie passed behind him. He paid no attention to her. He had not looked up when she entered the room. Passing behind him once more to go out, Dixie looked through the open window before which he sat. 
Sinclair and Marion, sitting under the cottonwood tree, were in plain sight, and the muzzle of the rifle where it lay covered them. Dixie thrilled, but the man was busy with his work. Breathing deeply, she walked out on the porch again. Sinclair, she thought, was looking straight at her, and in her anxiety to appear unconscious, she turned, walked to the end of the house, and at the corner almost ran into a man sitting out of doors in the shade mending a saddle he had removed his belt to work and his revolver lay in the holster on the bench its grip just within reach of his hand dixie walked in front of him but he did not look up she turned as if changing her mind and with a little flirt of her riding skirt sat down in the porch chair feeling a faint moisture upon her forehead. "'I'm going to leave this country, Marion,' Sinclair was saying. "'There's nothing here for me. I can see that. What's the use of my eating my heart out over the way I've been treated? I've given the best years of my life to this railroad, and now they turn me down with a kick and a curse. It's the old story of the Indian and his dog, only I don't propose to let them make soup of me.' I'm going to the coast, Marion. I'm going to California, where I wanted to go when we were married, and I wish to God we had gone there then. All our troubles might never have been if I'd got in with a different crowd from these cowboozers on the start. And, Marion, I want to know whether you'll give me another chance and go with me. Sinclair, on the bench and leaning against the tree, sat with folded arms looking at his wife. Marion, in a hickory chair, faced him. "'No one would like to see you be all you ought to be more than I, Murray, but you're the only one in the world that can ever give yourself another chance to be that.' "'The fellows in the saddle here now have denied me every chance to make a man of myself again on the railroad. You know that, Marion. In fact, they never did give me the show I was entitled to. I ought to have had Haley's place.' Buck's never treated me right in that. He never pushed me in the way he pushed other men that were just as bad as I ever was. It discouraged me. That's the reason I went to pieces. It could be no reason for treating me as you treated me, for bringing drunken men and drunken women into our house, and driving me out of it, unless I would be what you were and what they were. I know I haven't treated you right. I've treated you shamefully. I will do anything on earth you say to square it. I will. Recollect, I had lived among men and in the same country with women like that for years before I knew you. I didn't know how to treat you. I admit it. Give me another chance, Marion. I gave you all that I had when I married you, Murray. I haven't anything more to give to any man. You would be disappointed in me if I could ever live with you again and I could not do that without living a lie every day. He bent forward, looking at the ground. He talked of their first meeting in Wisconsin, of the happiness of their little courtship. He brought up California again and the northwest coast, where, he told her, a great railroad was to be built, and he should find the chance he needed to make a record for himself. It had been promised him, a chance to be the man his abilities entitled him to be in railroading. And I've got a customer for the ranch and the cows, Marion. I don't care for this business. Damn the cows. 
Let somebody else chase em through the sleet. I've done well. I've made money, a lot of money, the last two years in my cattle deals. And I've got it put away, Marion. You need never lift your hand to work in our house again. We can live in California and live well, under our own orange trees, whether I work or not. All I want to know is, will you go with me? No, I will not go with you, Murray. He moved in his seat and threw his head up appealingly. Why not? I will never be dishonest with you. I never have been, and I never will be. I have nothing in my heart to give you, and I will not live upon your money. I am earning my own living. I am as content as I ever can be, and I shall stay where I am and do what I am doing till I die, probably. And this is why I came when you asked me to, to tell you the exact truth. I am not a girl any longer. I never can be again. I am a woman. What I was before I married you, I never can be again. And you have no right to ask me to be a hypocrite and say I can love you. For that is what it all comes to, when I have no such thing in my heart or life for you. It is dead and gone, and I cannot help it. That sounds pretty hard, Marion. It's only the truth. It sounded fearfully hard to me when you told me that woman was your friend, that you knew her before you knew me and would know her after I was dead, that she was as good as I and that if i didn't entertain her you would but it was the truth you told me the truth and it was better that you told it as it is better now that i tell it to you i was drunk i didn't tell you the truth a man is a pretty tough animal sometimes but you are a woman and a pure one and i care more for you than for all the other women in the world and it's not your nature to be unforgiving it is to be honest he looked suddenly up at her and spoke sharply marion i know why you won't go i have honestly told you no you have not honestly told me the real reason is gordon smith if he were i should not hesitate to tell you murray but he is not she said coldly sinclair spoke harshly do you think you can fool me don't you suppose I know he spends his time loafing around your shop? Marion flushed indignantly. It is not true. Don't you suppose I know he writes letters back to Wisconsin to your folks? What have I to do with that? Why shouldn't he write to my mother? Who has a better right? Don't drive me too far. By God, if I go away alone, I'll never leave you here to run off with Whispering Smith. Remember that she sat in silence his rage left her perfectly quiet and her unmoved expression shamed and in part silenced him don't drive me too far he muttered sullenly if you do you will be responsible marion she did not move her eyes from the blue hills on the horizon i expect you to kill me sometime i feel sure you will and that you may do. Then she bent her look on him. You may do it now if you want to. His face turned heavy with rage. Marion, he cried with an oath, do you know how close you are to death at this moment? You may do it now. 
he clenched the bench rail and rose slowly to his feet marion sat motionless in the hickory chair the sun was shining in her face and her hands were folded in her lap dixie rocked on the porch in the shadow of the house the man was mending the saddle end of chapter twenty five